Well, we are knee-deep in the book of Daniel. And boy, you know, when you uh, read these things, there's so much going on here. Uh, there's so much going on that it, uh, it goes, uh, as we would say, far beyond the scope of, uh, of a message. And it really speaks into our world in so many, so many different ways. After last week, I was uh, thinking about uh, what we were talking about, about those, the statue, you know, uh, made of different metals and representing a variety of kingdoms. And then the stone comes, you know, like out of nowhere, you know, and boom, uh, it knocks it down. Um, we spend so much time, so much energy uh, thinking about these kingdoms. Uh, it, it is amazing uh, how little time is spent thinking about the stone, you know? And that is really true uh, when you read commentaries, articles, and so on. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of is a mirror of uh, the way that we as believers who are who are uh, uh, related to that stone, you might say the beginnings of the formation of the mountain, uh, uh, how we view uh, the, uh, the kingdoms of this world. What I mean by that is, you know, uh, the stone was not part of the statue. So therefore, we as Messiah followers, we are not part of the statue, Right? Uh, and so, therefore, we need to see ourselves that way. Um, you know, we live in this world. We, we uh, can't help that. And, you know, the passage in the Brit Hadashah, we are not, uh, uh, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, you, you know. And that is certainly true. We don't live uh, like in Mar on Mars or something, uh, you know, or uh, separated uh, uh, from this world. We live in it. We live in a, everybody lives in a country somewhere, right? Whether it's uh, the United States or, uh, uh, or a territory of some sort, no one lives like where there is no, uh, you know, an un, uh, uncharted uh, waters of this, wor of this world. We, live, we all live somewhere. And so therefore, we are uh, under the authority uh, of magistrates of some sort anywhere we live, Right? So, uh, uh, therefore, we live uh, in this world. We live according to the rules, the, the, uh, the governmental structure, and, and so on, right? Uh, and uh, 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 as believers, though, it's important for us uh, to recognize that, wait a minute, while I live here and while I abide by it, uh, I don't consider this my primary identity, I don't consider uh, living in the United States or Canada or Mexico or, uh, you know, France, England, wherever it might be, as my primary uh, identity. Uh, and and th that my primary, I primary identity is, uh, is indeed in, uh, in Messiah. And so, therefore, that gives us the opportunity then we could say to speak into this world, to infiltrate uh, into this world. Uh, if we use the word empire instead of kingdom, uh, we, uh, we can speak 
into it. We can speak into it in a variety of ways, and that would be a nice group discussion, right? Uh, different ways of speaking into this world, whether it be um, by participating in some sort of uh, forum or, uh, you know, or uh, in, in the government, uh, perhaps, uh, or being a good citizen and making a difference in my neighborhood and among my friends and uh, the people that I know, uh, sharing the good news uh, of Messiah, uh, all those kinds of things. In a way, that's like the stone hitting the statue, you know? Uh, now, unfortunately, sometimes uh, uh, we, uh, well, I should say it like this. In, in ancient Israel, it's interesting, uh, when you look in 1 Samuel, you see that the, uh, the Jewish people wanted to be like the other nations, right? They wanted a king like the other nations. That's how you end up with Saul, right? Now, 1 Samuel, by the way, is fascinating in... It's hard to tell when you're reading 1 Samuel well, whether having a king is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, well, ultimately it's a good thing because... David becomes the king, and the Messiah is going to be a king, and you know. Uh, but it is very interesting when you read, especially the eighth chapter and the twelfth chapter of uh, Samuel. Samuel is telling them about uh, you know the difficulties of having a king, and you know you read in chapter eight, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. You see it over and over again. The king is going to take from you, uh, and uh, and then in chapter twelve, it's kind of like what I wasn't good enough for you. What? You know, I, 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 you, you didn't receive enough from, from the messengers of God who came. Now you have to have a king like the other nations. So it's a very interesting study about this issue of a transition to a monarchy. But the point is, uh, is that they wanted to be like the nations. It's like they wanted to be a kingdom. They wanted to be a kingdom like the other kingdoms, right? And that was, of course, the problem. Uh, it, was, it was not so much the issue of a king. It was the issue of wanting to be like everybody else. God clearly called the Jewish people to be different from everybody else, right? The classic passage is in Leviticus. Don't be like the Egyptians where you're coming from. Don't be like the Canaanites where you're going, right? You're, you're called to be different. When you're different, you live on the margins. When you're different, you don't fit in just right. When you're different, you're not just part of the masses, right? Uh, and so therefore, uh, that's what, Israel ultimately uh, is called to be different and to lead the, the, the nations to the God of Israel. Uh, when Israel wants to be like all the other nations, uh, Israel is very susceptible to following the other nations rather than leading the other nations. And so, uh, as uh, Messiah followers, we have, throughout history, there has been a real desire to create a spiritual slash religious slash political entity of uh, the, whether you want to call it the church, uh, the kingdom on this earth, and it is always a bad thing. It never is right. It never uh, works out. Uh, because when Yeshua came, he did not come at this time to establish a political, a political empire kingdom in this world. No. In fact, he gives a whole discourse on it. 
It's in Matthew chapter 13. And I thought uh, we might take a look at that before we move on. Here I had, I'm all ready for chapter 3, but I see where we're going. Okay. All right. uh, In chapter 13, Yeshua tells a series of parables, right? And it's great. The disciples are saying, what is, we have no idea what you're talking about, Yeshua, right? Uh, And so he starts telling them uh, a a parable, right, Uh, about a seed that falls uh, in different places. What, What is this supposed to mean to us, right? So, uh, uh, they say, first he says in verse 9, after he tells them this parable, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Okay? Now certainly he wasn't talking about people who physically had ears. Like there was, might be a, a small group of people that had ears. Okay? No. That uh, those, who, uh, those who have a heart for understanding pay attention here. Okay? Uh, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And then he says something very important in verse 11. He answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mysteries of the kingdom. Sounds like a late night bad movie. You know what I mean? The mysteries of the kingdom. What had not been understood but is now revealed. Okay? About the kingdom of heaven. The nature of this kingdom. Now, they understood that when the kingdom comes, uh, all the enemies are going to be destroyed and it's going to be just God's kingdom. Like you read here in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. That was the expectation. That's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, now are you going to establish the kingdom? After all is said and done, now are you going to establish the kingdom? That's what they mean. You know, like where you're going to be king and, uh, you know, we're going to be free and we're not going to be under Roman oppression anymore. Now, now are you going to do that? They understood that that's what's supposed to happen uh, when the Messiah comes. But Yeshua explains what had not been understood or known, and that is that at least until that time, until that time when Yeshua manifests himself in that way as an objective reality in this world and everybody recognizes that he's the king, that this kingdom is going to be concurrent with this world and that he would reign, one might say, invisibly. Now, what is striking about these parables? Basically, the sower and the seeds, without taking every bit of it apart, and you know, the thing about parables is they're basically a story teaching something. You know, here's something, by the way, just to to keep in the back of your mind. When you read the parables, do you know that not every tiny thing in the parable has to relate to something? It's what's the parable about? What's it about? Oh, so many books would not have been written uh, if that had been understood. All right? Uh, Basically, what we read first is that, you know what the first mystery of this kingdom is? It's It's not an objective reality that everybody knows. No. It's something that can be rejected. It can be rejected. Okay? Then he tells a parable about the wheat and the tares. That boy, that it's all, people are all mixed in together. People are all, the field is the world. And people are all mixed in together, right? Uh, those who, who know the Lord, who embrace the Lord. Those who give lip service to the Lord. Those who reject him. 
you know, and it's not until the end when you have the, the wheat separated from the, the, the tares and, and so on. So it's not always visible to understand who is uh, in the reign of God, who is in the kingdom, so to speak. Okay. Then, you know, having said that, it's kind of like, wow, I, you know, it's a little anticlimactic. You might say that, well, so that means that I can belong to the Lord, but it, it's just sort of living in this world. But then he talks about uh, the pearl of great price, right? Uh, uh, he talks about the leaven, meaning these, these parables are about, even though it's little, it really is really important. Even though it is marginalized, let's say that. Even though this kingdom is marginalized in this world, meaning... See, the mystery of the kingdom is, in, in a sense is, is that this uh, uh, unity of believers is not going to politically overthrow this world. Wow, that flies in the face of almost everything and many theologies. See, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the kingdom of Messiah in this world at this time is marginalized just like Yeshua in his life. It's just like Yeshua in his life. Marginalized. Not only marginalized, but as we learned uh, the last two Thursday nights, uh, is called to serve, to be a, a slave of God, which, which is the very nature of God, right? What did he say? I came not to be served in the Gospel of Mark. I came not to be served, but to serve, right? Uh, isn't it interesting that when Yeshua came into this world as the Messiah in the incarnation, he didn't come as like a famous person or like a really rich person or an influential person. He came like as a nobody, right? So what we learn is that nobodies are really somebodies. Uh, that's really the truth. And I could give a whole thing on that. But, but uh, our, when our identity is in Messiah, that you see, then we know who we are. Then it doesn't matter what where we are on the socioeconomic ladder or uh, what people think about me or what I look like or, you know, or, or uh, anything like that. So when you read these parables, which is another story for another day, in Matthew 13, uh, we see it's kind of like the stone. The stone isn't part of the statue. So it's very important for us to see ourselves that way and that it's okay to be marginalized because we're not... We're not here to win popularity contests in this world. We're not here to become a major political player. It doesn't mean that, that believers should never participate as individuals. No, people may be called in that way to make a difference in that way. But we're not called to build a kingdom, a spiritual political empire. Many people would never call it that, but that is the agenda for many. Rather, what we are called to do is to speak into this empire, speak into this world, and make a difference in it, culturally, spiritually, thus, so to speak, picking away at it, picking away at it. But it is quite clear from, from the book of Daniel, as well as throughout the New Covenant, that the day is going to come when there's going to be another appearance of Messiah, big time, right? Where everybody's going to recognize him. And they're either going to believe, they're not going to believe, there's going to be a judgment, the world's going to be turned upside down, and, and there you go. That's the hope. That's what we know is coming. See? Uh, but we, we are living as if, we live our lives in one way as if uh, that is here, 
and in another way, recognizing that we are on a journey. We are on this uh, journey. And so that is very empowering rather than saying, what can we do? How can we make a difference in this world? We do when we are related to Messiah. Think about his own life, Yeshua's own life. I mean, really, he lived in a, he lived in a very small place in this world. He was not a famous person. You know how people like to say that? He never wrote a book. You know, and all that. Well, that's all true. Horizontally, it's all true. He, you know, uh, he was not a, a political mover and shaker. He was an outsider. And then he died. He was murdered. He was killed. Right? Right. Uh, but we know, of course, he was raised uh, from the dead. But in his life, in that physical part uh, of his life, he was certainly uh, marginalized. Uh, but the day will come when uh, he will be indeed on center stage in this world, and there will indeed be that uh, kingdom. But one of the great lessons we can learn from Daniel chapter 2 is indeed uh, that we are not part of that statue, right? We're part of that stone, right? All right, very good. That takes us to the third chapter, okay? That takes us to Daniel chapter 3. Now, if you remember that uh, uh, Daniel uh, tells Nebuchadnezzar this dream, this nightmare that he had, and, uh, and of course nobody lives forever, and the text says that there would be other kingdoms to come after him. But Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, you know? And so you can just picture Nebuchadnezzar, I am the head of gold. Remember we said that last time? Well, now when you come to chapter 3, look what he does. Look how he responds, right? Now, one thing to keep in the back of your mind is Nebuchadnezzar was a man with issues, right? He's angry. First, he has these nightmares, and he, and he needs to have them interpreted, right? So then he becomes very angry when uh, uh, no one seems to be able to tell him the dream and the interpretation. He's going to kill everybody around him. Then he hears, hey, there's an exile. There's this person who's on the margins, right? Not exactly one of us, right? There's an exile, this Hebrew, this Jew, uh, who uh, uh, can, can interpret the dream. So we learned last time Daniel does that. He, he interprets the dream. And, uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, his uh, anger is... Uh, is uh, set aside, right? Because now he understands. And then he hears, the, he hears the meaning of the dream and he's like praising God, Daniel's God. This is fabulous, right? And so the next thing now we see, he's happy again, all right? Uh, but now in chapter three, let's look and see immediately what he does. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Well, what a coincidence. The height of which was 60 cubits and it's, with six cubits, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so basically, you can do the math on your own. It's about 100 feet tall and very narrow, okay? So the question is, how could it even stand up? Well, you know, there's an interesting, um, uh, interesting little thing going on here. Plain of Dura is an interesting phrase, uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that that word, dura, actually has a meaning. 
And uh, in other passages in the uh, Tanakh, uh, notably in the beginning chapters of Judges, by the way, sometimes places are used to describe things or ideas uh, uh, as the names of towns and places. So Dura is a borrowed word from a language uh, called Akkadian, okay? And it means wall, wall, okay? So it is a possibility that this was not a statue that was actually like out in a field 100 feet tall, but it was actually on a flat area of a wall. Like in other words, uh, attached to a wall. This 100-foot, very narrow statue. Some also speculate, perhaps, that it was a profile view. That's why it was so, uh, that's why it would have been narrow. So that's just rather interesting. Uh, uh, this issue of Dura, where that might be, no one knows if it is indeed a, a place. But it is very interesting uh, that uh, the word Dura means wall. Uh, and uh, in the province of Babylon, right there where Nebuchadnezzar was. So now, also, it, you know, it's also interesting. Uh, you might say, well, how could something be that? How could something be that tall? This has to be make believe. Uh, not really, uh, because you have uh, uh, other ancient in the ancient world statues and and very large uh, structures. Uh, that were uh, uh, higher. Uh, let's, I read about, for example, uh, uh, the Egyptian stone finks at Giza, older than Babylon, way older than Babylon, uh, uh, about uh, 240 feet long, uh, 66 feet high, then there's the Colossus of Rhodes, an ancient statue with a metal exterior. Uh, it was said to be 110 feet uh, uh, high. So in the ancient world, this would not have been uh, outrageous or outlandish, but it does tell us something about Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the way that uh, perhaps he understood himself uh, in this. So while he praises the God of Daniel, uh, he certainly uh, is very fixated, uh, perhaps, on himself here. All right? Now, then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Those are all very interesting uh, terms uh, that are borrowed from, most of them borrowed from uh, uh, Persian. Uh, we don't know exactly the, the specific differences. People surmise differences between these uh, uh, different groups, but what they are, are all, uh, we'd say, government leaders, you know? Uh, and they, uh, uh, so to speak, um, by, by mentioning them, he's going to mention them several times as a group. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication. Like, in other words, clicking them off. Boom, 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 boom. All these different groups. Then, then in verse 3, 
Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled <laughs> for the dedication, and repeats it, for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you see several things are being really uh, 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 emphasized. That Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. This is the work of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't forget that, all right? And then also, all these different groups of people who are like, you know, the lackeys of the government, the people that, uh, uh, that whatever Nebuchadnezzar says, they, they, he says jump, they jump, boom, 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 boom. They come to the dedication. Everybody's in line. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody in the, they're in the empire. These are the central people. These are the main folks. They come and do what they're supposed to do, Okay. Then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, uh, the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, tragon, psalmetry, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, which is another interesting study in and of itself, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Okay? So, not only come to the dedication of it, not only say, ooh, ah, this is really great. We love you, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, this is fabulous. But they were to fall to their knees and worship it, right? So there is a uh, civil aspect to it, and there is a religious, you might say, aspect to it. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of a blazing fire. All right. Now, furnaces in those, this is a very scary thing, okay? Furnaces in those, it's not like your furnace, okay? It's not like the furnace in your basement, all right? Uh, uh, furnaces uh, in that day were uh, very different. Let's see if I can find my little information on furnaces. First of all, they were uh, kilns, right? Uh, uh, like uh, for, for bricks, like brick kilns. And they're, uh, they were very large, like people could fit in them. Uh, also, their opening was on the top. So if anybody gets thrown in one, they're like thrown down into it, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, there were coals in there. And, and so it wasn't like electric heat. It was, it was, uh, it was a, obviously a horrible experience to be inside uh, one of these uh, uh, large, like, brick uh, uh, kilns, all right? Yeah, that's good enough. So uh, you want to get that kind, of, uh, that kind of visual there, that this was, would be a horrifying experience. Therefore, at that time, when the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lair, tragon, psalmetry, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of, the, of all these instruments, right? The horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psalmetry, bagpipe, all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. 
There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They, have, they uh, do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have uh, uh, set up. So we see they disregard him, they will not serve his gods, and they will not worship the image. So there is a, like, a civil issue. They don't regard the king. Uh, they don't follow his religious practices. And in particular, they don't worship this statue. All right? Now, some ask, right, the white elephant in the room is, where's Daniel? Uh, you have the, the, the three friends of Daniel. Where's Daniel? So let me just say something about, about, about that. All right? People come up with all kinds of things. Uh, one uh, plausible explanation is in the text uh, when it uh, says that the people who are called in this episode to uh, bow down are the administrators of the province of Babylon. Okay? The provinces of Babylon. So some have said, well, that was, Daniel is not in this episode because he was not an administrator of the provinces of Babylon. That was, that's what these three did. The, Daniel was in the king's court. Daniel had a different role. Okay, so that's a possibility. Uh, related to that is just simply that this is, a, this is an episode. This is a story that took place. And in this particular episode, Dan, it's making a point about these three friends of Daniel and not a Daniel. Okay, that's, that's important. Very much like, uh, for example, if you uh, watch a television, episodic television, right? And there is like main characters, a series of main characters. Sometimes there is an episode where the main character is not present or it's not about the main character, okay? So it's no great shakes like, oh, you see... Uh, this comes from somewhere else, and the, the, the three friends of Daniel are inserted into this story. This was a legend of a different time. No, Daniel is just absent from this particular episode of what takes place. Perhaps because such a dramatic thing occurs to them that the writer of Daniel, or Daniel himself, wanted us to get this story wanted us to understand this story about these three, uh, these three men. All right, so now uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the, the horn, the flute, the lyre, the tri trigon, psalmetry, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you uh, 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 out of my hands. Okay? Basically, he's saying not, not only what God is there, but is there a God who will, who will do that? In other words, who will uh, actually uh, not yield 
to my own uh, admonitions. What God is there who would, would uh, usurp my authority and actually deliver you out, out, out of this? So this is a challenge uh, uh, to them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Now this is chutzpah, right? If it be so, now that in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, is a whole thing, there's a whole thing going on. I, um, I, really, it's if there, if he is, it's, it's uh, if, if he is, as, uh, or as if there is uh, our God, if he is, okay, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. In other words, translators have a problem with that phrase, if he is, because it's as if they're saying, if our God exists. But they're not, they're not you know, atheists were not invented yet. Uh, they're, not insane. they're not saying here, Maybe our God doesn't exist, but if you just, but the, the, the Aramaic literally says, uh, if he is, meaning logically, if our God exists, he's got, you know, uh, we uh, are going to be okay. He's going to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to do what you say. All right. So it's sort of like a, a logical conclusion. If he is, okay, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Now, that is very important here. If he is, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. All right? So, he is indeed able. In verse 18 it says, But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve uh, your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, these are very famous verses, right? Uh, and they speak to us uh, in uh, in tremendous ways. Um, so, first thing is that is what they're saying is the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Whether he does is another story. Our faith, they're saying, is not based on whether he comes through for us and delivers us from this furnace, our faith, faith is based on the fact that he is able to do this. That is who our God is. That's the God whom we serve. In other words, they trusted him. They trusted God. And this, may I suggest, is what it means when uh, we uh, say, well, let's, you know, give that thing to the Lord uh, or lay it before the feet of Yeshua. What we're saying is, let us trust that he is, has the power to overcome this issue. And so I'm going to place my, my trust in him who is able to deliver. Okay. Whether he does it or not, I'm leaving that in his hands because he is the God of heaven and earth. And he oversees all that happens in my life. And I know that he is able to deliver. But my faith is not based on whether he does it or not. That is putting God on the hot seat every time. That is saying, well, I'm going to really trust in God if uh, he answers my prayer the way I want him to answer my prayer. That's, boy, I have lots of faith when that happens. 
But if that doesn't happen, God didn't come through. But no, you see, if we really believe he is able, he is indeed the God of heaven and earth, and he is able, then whatever happens, we can trust that he is in control of my circumstances. And that is what they were saying. Now that, just like Daniel in the first chapter, that takes a cultivated faith. You don't walk into a situation uh, having like not prayed for the last five years or read the Bible, you know, not as long as I can remember, you know, but I'm really big on the Onegs. But um, uh, I, I'm not really cultivating a relationship with God. My, my guess is probably you would not be able to come through in this. You, you would, you would uh, not, not, I was going to say you could melt, but let's, let's use a different term. Uh, you, you know, you would not come through. You, you, would, uh, you would bow down. You would succumb to it unless there's something going on, a cultivated faith. Now, certainly, uh, it is possible right in that moment, uh, you know, that the heavens open up and, and I know in whom I believe and I have never prayed before, but I am going to do it. Yeah, that could be. That may happen, but that is not the norm for believers, for us. That is not the way we're called uh, 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 to, to live, right? Uh, we are called to have it set in our hearts how we're going to live. So what we, when we come to such a time as this, we're able to stand firm, see? Now you have a progression going on also in Daniel 1, 2, and 3. You know how in Daniel 1 and 2, Daniel is kind of like working in the system and, and, uh, and, you know, is real savvy in what he says and, and is able to have a testimony, uh, you know, within the confines uh, of uh, the uh, uh, Chaldean authority. But sometimes we have to actually say no, regardless of the consequences. Sometimes living out of the land, living in the diaspora, living in another place. Sometimes we have to just draw the line and it is like black and white. And we have to say, uh, like Peter, we serve God rather than men. And that's how it is. And so what we see is they were prepared to be martyrs. And they knew that they would be delivered not out of the fire, but out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar will never own us. Nebuchadnezzar will never have us. And that is what, uh, and that is uh, the victory uh, that, they, that they have here. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, that's what they say uh, to the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now again, this is not like the furnace in your house. This is not like someone went over to the thermostat. You know, it's, it's, it sounds like a far side cartoon of sorts. Like, you know, uh, that's not how it was. It just like heated is heated completely seven times. Heated as high as it'll go. And that is uh, what, uh, what takes place, okay? Now, we're going to pause here uh, for Messiah's table because now is a, a, a wonderful time uh, uh, for us to contemplate these things because what these three are demonstrating 
is what it means to be a servant of the Lord, what it means to be a slave of Messiah. If you were here the last two Thursdays, you would have learned that slavery meant in every facet of life, you are a slave to the master. In every facet that there is. And so, we need to be challenged by this portion and ask ourselves, what about me? You know, uh, what about me? How would I respond? And of course, Yeshua is uh, the, uh, the uh, ultimate uh, model, as we said, and we read in uh, Philippians, uh, in the second chapter, uh, just one little part where Yeshua is being described here. Uh, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, death on that execution stake or tree. Right? So obedient to the point of death. Can we say that about ourselves? Yeshua told us, this is what it means to be a follower of mine in the Gospel of Luke. He says we need, you know, bear that execution stake, bear that, uh, bear that cross. I use the word cross here in its meaning, which was, a, it, was a, it, it, it meant death. It didn't mean some kind of worshipful experience. It was death, you know? Uh, and, and so bear that, and then we read in one place, bear that daily, right? Uh, and so uh, it's a way of life. Uh, is, and not just metaphorically. Like, you know, I will give up pizza. You know, or, um, you know, I will, I, or just, I will have a mindset, uh, you know, to defer to others. Now that is what is being taught in Philippians chapter 2, but it does not preclude uh, physically having this attitude of I'm going to serve the Lord to my uh, death. And that's a very important thing. There are many times in the Brit Hadashah where something physical is used as a metaphor, but it is not uh, negating the physical activity. Like when Yeshua talks about murder, and he says, you're murdering someone, you know, if you, if you speak to them in a bad way or you say bad things. He's not then saying, but murder now is okay. Now just don't be, speak badly about people. No, he's not saying that at all, right? Obviously, that wouldn't make sense. And so here as well. And we read in Luke chapter 14, uh, for example, whoever, in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, what cannot be my disciple? It's awfully legalistic, right? That's, well, that's what he says. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? And so, count the costs. Count the costs of being a Messiah follower. It is easy to be a Messiah follower if we want to be part of the statue. It is not easy to be a Messiah follower in this world if you want to be part of the stone. We, in our country, in our world, we have had it so good, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. In other places where you have, to be a believer, you have to be underground, it's pretty much black and white. And certainly that day may soon be approaching uh, uh, for us as well. And are we cultivating that kind of life? Are we cultivating that kind of 
of uh, faith. See, uh, do we count the costs of being a Messiah, a follower? Now I'm going to recommend a book. I'll bet you can guess what it is. It's called The Cost of Discipleship, right? By Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I read that book in 1978 uh, when I was in the throes of deciding what I should do after I graduated from college. And I had this big challenge before me of, do I, you know, go to Chicago, go to Moody Bible Institute, or do I continue with the trajectory of my life, which was going to be go to graduate school and get a good job and, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, and I read that book. And I, I've, I've read it uh, many times since uh, as well. Uh, and I'll just say, it's a, it's a great read about the cost of being a Messiah, a follower. Uh, many people uh, have died simply to be able to read the text of the Bible. In fact, it's a sad thought to know, but even in the church, which tried to be a political entity, uh, burned people at the stake for reading the Bible on their own. Yes, that is true. Uh, but also, others uh, have willingly, willingly gone to very difficult places to bring the good news of Messiah to people, to be a testimony, and have physically been murdered, died in terrible ways, you see. Uh, so the question for, that's a real challenge for us. Where do I stand? Now, the book of Daniel, you know, not to tell the, uh, the whole story, but if you go to the end of Daniel, uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, right? You know, in the 12th chapter, you read, Now at that, at, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found within the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the point is, he's saying here, there's going to be a resurrection. And that is a real truth. And that is the great news about the Messiah. Yes, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, but then he rose from the dead. And so that is true for us. And if we really believe the truth about the resurrection, really believe it, the sting of death is taken away. And we can wholeheartedly be a Messiah follower and not be so concerned about the politics of this world and more concerned about am I following the Lord to the point of death? Am I a slave of Messiah? In my, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my job, I, I, in, in every venue in which I exist. And that is a great lesson, a great challenge from these three men in that furnace. Now we're going to pause here. We'll see what happens to them probably next time. All right. But let's have those who are serving Messiah's table come. And when we have Messiah's table, we are saying, what we're saying is, I identify with Yeshua in his life and in his death. We're making a public demonstration, a public display, saying, yes, I identify horizontally with those who embrace Messiah, with that community of Messiah followers. 
and vertically, I am, I am in Messiah. And in that way, Yeshua uh, dwells with us uh, as we participate in Messiah's table. That's what makes this so important uh, to us. So let's pray and we'll distribute the uh, matzah and the cups and then we'll part- partake together. Lord, we thank you, God, for uh, uh, this uh, marvelous testimony, Lord, that you are indeed able to deliver. You are indeed able to do anything in this world, Lord, and we trust you for that. Lord, you will do what you will do, but we know you are able, and we will follow you, Lord. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would cultivate within us a life in which we truly are that living sacrifice, where every part of our life is indeed under your lordship, under your leadership, Lord. And may our participation in Messiah's table today be a demonstration of that great truth in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of Messiah, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on that tree, that death on that cross. Lord, yet you raised him from the dead. Lord, we look forward indeed to that inheritance that awaits us. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.